Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very happy and proud uh, to have Dr. E. Michael Jones on the Genesis Group. Uh, today he's going to give us a detailed lecture about his incredible book, uh, Libido Dominandi. And uh, I would just like to say thank you, Dr. Jones, for taking the time and um, giving us from your incredible wealth of knowledge. And the floor is yours. So please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think I, I mentioned earlier that uh, I uh, started off my professional life as a, a professor of American literature at St. Mary's College, a Catholic college uh, right across the street from Notre Dame outside of South Bend, Indiana, and that I got fired one year after I got there for being against abortion. And this opened my eyes to something that I hadn't, didn't understand. I was, I was stunned by this. Uh, I had been out of the country for, for years. I had been in graduate school for the rest of the year, so I missed a kind of a decade of development here in the Catholic Church. And I was shocked to find that the, the sexual revolutionaries had taken over the Catholic Church. Now, I couldn't, uh, at least Catholic academe, the, the academic life of the Catholic Church, at this point, sexual liberation meant feminism largely. We're talking about the 70s. I arrived at St. Mary's College in 79, which was the end of the 70s. Um, so I was stunned. I didn't know what to do. Uh, and I uh, spent a year, you know, trying to figure it out. And I decided I'm going to start a magazine. And the magazine was Fidelity. And the first thing I started talking about was uh, sexuality. Uh, because that was the big issue here. No one was talking about it. Everybody took it for granted that uh, this was something, some great liberation had taken place during the 1970s. Uh, and uh, that's not the way I saw it. And so I started off talking about articles, shorter articles, uh, which got published in Fidelity magazine, a lot of them dealing with feminism and then the background of feminism and then uh, and so on. So I wrote these articles. We're talking about a beginning in 1981, the start of the magazine. And for the next 20 years, I was writing articles like this uh, almost. And at a certain point, it all started to come together in my mind uh, that there was it wasn't just isolated articles. There was a bigger picture here. And I decided I could write that picture and it would be a history of uh, sexual liberation. Uh, and that idea started to form in my mind, and I had various things that I could take and put in, plug in already, because they'd already written them as articles. So one of them was the, uh, I, I got involved with writing about Sigmund Freud. Uh, and that eventually showed up in a, in a one of my early books called Degenerate Monitors. But it was first, it first appeared in an, an article, uh, in uh, article form in Fidelity magazine. And the issue was uh, the Oedipus complex. Was there an Oedipus complex? And in that uh, initial article, I realized that this was a cover. It was what Freud would call a screen memory for something else. So the Oedipus complex is basically every man wants to sleep with his mother or his sister. That didn't seem uh, immediately apparent to me at that time. Uh, it sounded kind of strange. You know, I had all kinds of desires, but uh, that was not one of them. And I started to look into it and I realized this was Freud writing his own autobiography. He, Someone once said he's got the longest autobiography in human history because everything he wrote was disguised autobiography. He had notes, notebooks. He burned them so no one would catch on. But it turns out that it wasn't everyone. He was talking about Sigmund Freud. And he was not only talking about his infatuation with his sister-in-law, Minna Bernays. And that uh, fascination got uh, consummated at one point. I saw the, the uh, diary, eine Schwelgerei, he said, ohne uh, Roy oder Trübe, uh, a, a debauch uh, without, uh, without, uh, without any type of uh, regret or uh, Trübe. What would that be? I don't know, cloudiness, whatever. So it turns out that this is uh, the man who was doing, uh, the author of one of the main schools of psychology in the 20th century, 
probably one of the first schools, probably the first school, because it started in the 19th century. Modern psychology, if you're going to talk about that, you should talk about Sigmund Freud. And it turns out that it was all a disguised autobiography. But it was more than that. It wasn't really psychology. It was psychological engineering. And that came out uh, later when I finally put the book Libido Dominandi together. Uh, it turns out that there was a, a deeper story here. And the story was control. So this story uh, came about when Freud was well known. There was an American uh, doctor, medical doctor by the name of Horace Frink. Uh, he decided he was going to become a psychoanalyst. And he got involved with doing psychoanalysis as he understood it. And then he wanted to be certified. And in order to be certified, he had to go over to Vienna at this point, in the early 20th century. He had to lie down on Sigmund Freud's couch. And at that point, you had to tell your story. It was like going to confession. This is exactly what Freud had in mind because he got the idea from the Illuminati uh, through Barrowell's book. The details are in Libido Dominandi, uh, which is if you find out what the person's passions are, you can control them. And that is precisely what he did. This was like the examination of conscience. He found out that Horace Frank uh, was having an affair with one of his patients. The woman was a wealthy woman because they were the only people who ever went into psychoanalysis because it cost a lot of money. Poor people didn't do this. They went to confession. So uh, she, uh, he tells Freud this. And so this is a clear violation of patient-client privilege. Uh, the rights of the of the patient, clear violation, clear exploitation of the patient in a vulnerable situation. So what does Sigmund Freud do? He says, does he say, this is awful. You should go to that woman and give her your money back, her money back and say you're sorry. No, what he says is basically, I want you to dump your wife, marry this woman who is your patient, and then give me a big contribution. Well, this is outrageous. But it's, it lets the cat out of the bag because this is what psychoanalysis was all about. It was about control. Now, Sigmund Freud controlled uh, the situation basically one patient at a time. Uh, and his main disciple at this point, well, he had many disciples and they were all Jewish, except for one, and that was Carl Jung, C.G. Jung. And Jung was supposed to be the heir apparent. They had a falling out. And then suddenly it turned into a contest. And the contest was basically who can get the richest goy from America to lie down on the couch and give me money. And actually, in this point, it was Jung who won out because he got Edith Rockefeller McCormick to come over. She laid down on the couch and she was so impressed, she recommended that her brother, Madel McCormick, this is the, these are the heirs of the international harvester fortune in America, that he lie down and guess what? He's got the same type of experience as Horace Frank had with, with uh, Sigmund Freud. So Madel says, uh, basically, I'm having an affair. I'm cheating on my wife and, and I feel bad. So I really want to talk about it. And Again, Jung does exactly the same thing that Freud does. If this were a penitent coming into the confessional, the priest would say, that's wrong. Uh, I forgive you of your sins, but you have to make a firm purpose of amendment not to do this again. This is confession turned upside down. The Catholic confessional turned upside down. So what we're dealing now with is uh, hand, Jung hands out a license to commit adultery. I will give you the license. He never used these terms, but that's basically the transaction that's going on here. I will give you a license to commit adultery. All you have to do is come in and pay me big fees uh, to confess. And every, hey, it's a win-win situation. We all make out. Uh, the, the psychiatrist gets rich and the uh, adulterer gets to keep on committing adultery. Now, this is the one of the mainstreams of modern psychology. This is a completely, uh, it's a completely a sham. It's a scientific sham. It's really a form of control. And now I've got the genesis of um, libido dominandi in my mind. 
And then it's a question of tracking it uh, after that, various things. Before I go, I go there, though, I'd like to say this is a, 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 an issue right now, right now as we speak. But the intermediary step was uh, psychiatry ending up in Hollywood. Psychiatry is a Jewish operation. Basically, all the practitioners in America were Jews, and they all understood, I think, the hidden grammar of psychoanalysis, which is basically uh, condoned sexual sin as a form of control. And so the classic example in Hollywood was Marilyn Monroe. She had a Jewish psychiatrist. And at this point, we're talking about the 1940s, early 50s. These people were all over the place. And it was the same story. Marilyn Monroe could simply not break away from her Jewish psychiatrist because he was there to control her life. And so she kept going back. He kept shooting her up with drugs, taking her money. And eventually Marilyn Monroe died. Uh, she died with a lot of drugs in her system. Whether she overdosed or whether she was murdered is an open question. Okay, but the element of Jewish control was there uh, and she was a victim of it. Uh, this is when the Jewish controller was known as a psychiatrist. Another lady around the same time was uh, Claire Booth Luce, who converted to Catholicism in the late 1940s. She became a protege of the famous uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen. And at this point, when she she in order to <laughs> in order to convert to Catholicism, she had to break from her Jewish psychiatrist. And then she talked about this, about how she had been liberated from this parasite, from this vampire who kept her enslaved uh, as long as she would give him uh, the money, you know, enslaved to her own passions and enslaved to this uh, Jewish controller. OK. Bishop Fulton Sheen mentioned this in a memoir, an attack on psychiatry, and he was immediately accused of being an anti-Semite. This is in the late 40s. Okay. Now, fast forward to yesterday, or the day before yesterday. What is What do we call Jewish controllers in Hollywood now? We don't call them psychiatrists anymore. We call them personal trainers. And guess who had a Jewish personal trainer? What well, turns out it was Kanye West. And Kanye West uh, just announced, he started tweeting this a couple, uh, I, I, well, a week ago, two weeks ago. Anyway, it's big news over here. I don't know whether it made it into Israel. But he started talking about his Jewish controller, his personal trainer. The guy's name is Harley Pasternak. You can look it up. Uh, unfortunately, the Jews who control Wikipedia have already cleansed that uh, uh, Wikipedia page of a lot of the information, namely all of the other people in Hollywood who were controlled by this Jew. Uh, personal trainer, the successor to uh, the Jewish psychiatrist of the sort that controlled Marilyn Monroe. Now, it's not just uh, it's not just he's a, uh, a controller. Uh, he's associated with Canadian psychological warfare. He was basically studying with the Canadian psychological warfare operation, uh, working out, uh, fine-tuning all of the drugs that you can give people to, to get nefarious uh, effects. And he was using all of this information on Kanye West. So there's this chilling moment where Kanye has just uh, proposed the, uh, uh, pr pr uh, produced the tweet. And it's basically the, the controller saying, I'll give you two alternatives. Either we sit down and talk about it and you do what I say, or I uh, recommit you and they will shoot you up with drugs and you will never see your children again. Well, that sounds like a threat to me. Uh, this is the way. And Kanye is now saying, hey, it's the Jews who control Hollywood. And he's proving it in a way that was way beyond what anyone suspected. So this was real serious. This is a real serious piece of information. It exposes the whole Jewish control of black entertainers. There's not one black entertainer in the world that, had, that doesn't have a Jewish handler. And this is the story that Kanye is breaking. And the ADL, the anti-defamation, the Jewish thought police here in America, uh, basically had to create another crisis to distract everyone uh, from what was going on here. So... That crisis uh, was the Kyrie 
Irving crisis where some basketball player tweeted something, a recommendation for a movie, and the Jews, the ADL, went ballistic. Uh, I think it was so trivial. Either they're, they're so stupid they don't know when they're shooting themselves in the foot, or I think to give them credit for their cunning, they probably realized the Kanye West stuff was so dangerous, uh, so uh, 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 so revelatory of Jewish control, the pernicious forms of Jewish control that pervade all of America right now, that they had to come up with another crisis to distract everyone's attention from it. That is the uh, the direct line all the way from Sigmund Freud to through Marilyn Monroe to Jewish uh, personal trainers. Exactly the same type of thing. Use a personal uh, a personal relationship which was psychoanalysis to control people, uh, to get rich from rich clients. All of the people that uh, Harley, uh, Pasternak had were all wealthy A-list people from Hollywood, could pay them a lot of money, got, obviously made a lot of money. Okay, that's one angle. But that's only one person. And it's not really an ex- – it's only – you're going to controlling rich people. Okay, you may make a lot of money, but you're not going to be tr- controlling the masses. And there was one guy who t- took that step uh, one step further, and that was Sigmund Freud's nephew, Eddie Bernays. This is the I think he's the the nephew of also Minna Bernays, the woman who uh, Bernays is the family that Sigmund Freud married into. Minna was his sister-in-law. Uh, she never married, so it was probably she. He, Eddie was probably her nephew, uh, the, the uh, 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 nephew, I believe. Okay, so Eddie comes over to the United States of America, and he takes the knowledge that he got from Uncle Sigmund about how to manipulate the goyim for money, and he extrapolates it to the new phenomenon at this point, we're talking about the 1920, let's say 1919, 1920, which is the mass media, which is just getting started. Hollywood is is going at this point, and uh, you have the creation of something like Time Magazine, uh, which is created in the 1920s, and Eddie Bernays becomes, as a result, the father of public relations, and basically extrapolates what he learned from his uncle as a form of mass control mass control, and one of the main instruments of mass control was advertising, another form of psychological manipulation. Eddie became famous for a contract he got with uh, Lucky Strike, uh, the, the Duke family cigarette company. Uh, at this point, the, uh, the they had created something called the Bonsac uh, cigarette rolling machine, and you could crank out cigarettes like no one. It, it was dirt cheap. Uh, it was a perfect product because it got you addicted immediately. But there was a problem at this point, a uh, social problem, which is basically that any woman who lit up a cigarette was considered a whore. Uh, I have an aunt, uh, my one of my deceased aunts, uh, would never smoke. She was addicted, totally addicted to cigarettes. It killed her at an, earl, at an early age. She died of lung cancer, uh, thanks thanks to Eddie Bernays. Uh, but she would never smoke in front of her father, my grandfather, because there was this stigma. So how are we going to deal with the stigma? Well, uh, Eddie comes up with this idea. Uh, the Easter parade, in New York, everybody dresses up and walks around. It's a Christian holiday. I know. I'll organize the Torches of Freedom parade. That's what he called the Torches of Freedom. So he paid all these women to go light up cigarettes walking down Madison Avenue on the Easter Day Parade. That's the type of takeover that Eddie orchestrated by turning Sigmund Freud into uh, a, a mass phenomena, the mass manipulation, the manipulation of the masses rather than a few rich goyim to, to, make, uh, to make money. That was that strain of, uh, of psychology. Libido dominandi is basically a history of modern psychology. And so what you had was, if in effect, the next school, which is a totally American school called behaviorism that was created by John B. Watson, uh, who was a boy from the South. He grew up on a farm and he just loved animals. 
he just loved being around animals. And he basically uh, understood that animals are basically they're programmed. They're, they're little, you, a little exaggeration. They're kind of machines. And uh, you program them to do certain things. And you can program them to, you know, you know dogs can be programmed. Uh, you know, uh, there was a Russian by the name of Pavlov who was going, uh, talking about the same thing in, in Russia. And he would uh, basically get dogs to salivate uh, by ringing a bell before mealtime. So after a while, you didn't have to produce the meal. All you had to do was ring the bell and then they celebrate. This is the type of thing John B. Watson was doing, and it became uh, basically the American form of psychology. Totally stupid. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I was supposed to get rational psychology, which would be the psychology of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. Instead, I got behaviorism, uh, which was so totally stupid to me, I couldn't understand it until the guy explained it to me. And then I went from getting zeros to getting A's in all my papers. Uh, but anyway, it's basically you can condition human beings. Well, no, because we have a different program because we don't uh, we don't simply react to stimuli. We can understand the stimuli and, and think about it and maybe do something else. So the classic example uh, at this point, uh, Watson became famous. He became a famous advisor for mothers, how to raise their children totally crazy stuff like uh, uh, the Skinner box where you put the baby in a box and you never touch it. He felt that the uh, mother should not have emotional contacts with their children. And the mother obviously has this emotional bond to the child. And so he said, well, okay, you can look in on the child, but what you do is take a periscope and just peer over the top of the crib. So the baby can't see you. crazy shit like this being promoted as uh, some type of expertise on how to raise a child. The, the, the culmination of this comes with uh, B.F. Skinner and his idea. The Israelis got involved in this too. So they captured, it, it became famous with ideas like brainwashing in uh, North Korea during the Korean War. And they, they had the, the idea of the Manchurian candidate, you could brainwash somebody to come back here and basically run for president and then take over the country that way. And so the Israelis uh, jumped on this bandwagon and they captured a Palestinian. And they, they subjected him to ruthless brainwashing and then they sent him off to kill some other Palestinian. And he went right to the police and said, these crazy, these crazy Jews have brainwashed me. I think you should go and arrest them for doing that. So it didn't work and it's not going to work. And that was so that that went down in flames as well, but not before they gave birth to a third way. The third way was basically uh, a combination of both sort of except that instead of like animal type of conditioning uh, people like Carl Rogers, who was famous for the third way would use peer pressure. This was basically based on the experience of Quakers. Again, this came into being after world war two. It was a Jew got involved with this uh, Levine by the name of Levine. who was working for the, uh, Office of Naval Research, but how can you use man's nature as a social animal, as a weapon against them? And the answer was sensitivity training or T groups, where you get a group of people together and then you would, uh, you know, start to break the ice, break down their inhibitions. I've been through this type of stuff. I was covering something as a reporter and suddenly I got swept up into this drama where everybody's supposed to pair off with someone. So I, I pair off with this uh, attractive young lady who comes, uh, stands in front of me and I'm supposed to stick my elbow on her nose and she's supposed to stick her elbow on my nose. And then we look each into each other's eyes and then we're supposed to tell this person a secret. Well, I felt like saying, well, my secret is I'm a journalist and I'm going to report on this, but I, you know, I, I was conflicted at that point. This is the type of breakdown of inhibition that this created. So you're vulnerable now. And then when you're vulnerable, you're, uh, you're vulnerable to the ma manipulation of, uh, the group psychology, which is also something he learned from the Quakers. So the culmination of this was an attack on the Catholic Church. Uh, after Vatican II, Carl Rogers got hired to uh, basically update an order of Catholic nuns in Los Angeles, the Immaculate Heart nuns, and he subjected them all to the sensitivity training, and it wrecked the order. Now, I knew the guy who was his assistant. He was a Catholic. He told me, I'm the first guy to break this story. 
uh, it's in libido dominandi. If you read, you can read it there about the immaculate heart nuns. And I had to convince him that this was intentional. He didn't even know. He thought that uh, Carl Rogers was trying to liberate these nuns. Well, he liberated them all, right? A lot of them became lesbians. That's what happens when you liberate these nuns from the moral order. They start acting on these impulses. So that's pretty much the whole story. The three strains of modern psychology that I've described are all forms of control. Uh, and they were all used uh, in a totally pernicious way to destroy uh, our culture, I, I mean American culture. And as I said, mentioned uh, with the case of uh, Harley Pasternak, Kanye's personal trainer, it's still at work today, just under different forms. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Jones. Uh, what is the response of the Catholic Church today for what you're describing? To total, <laughs> total, uh, what should I say, rejection. The, the, the crisis of the Catholic Church right now is that it does not know its own history. This is a history. I'm the first guy who told the story of what happened to those Immaculate Heart nuns. The Catholic Church, you think, would be interested in knowing what happened to a group of women who were dedicating their lives to the Catholic Church and then suddenly disappeared or became feminine or something like that. Don't you think? I had this experience with Cardinal Kroll of Philadelphia. I was uh, uh, asked to be, write a biography of Cardinal Kroll. So I came in uh, uh, at this point, it was an old man at this point, and, and I talked about a parish in southwest Philadelphia that was the biggest source of vocations for that archdiocese. And I said, if, if you were in charge of the De Beers diamond mine and someone from Tanzania came in and flooded it, what would you do? And he looked at me and he said, this is my analogy of what happened to the parish, the Catholic parish, because the blacks came in, it was they, the Catholics were ethnically cleansed. He said, uh, you can't tell people to live. In other words, completely ignore, complete, and if you bring it up, they, they, com they completely reject it because they are, the Catholics are docile, they are docile slaves of the empire. They think that they have to do, uh, they have to to do what more important people tell tell them to do. They, they don't have their own history. They're afraid to say, this is my history. Because somebody from Harvard might get upset and call them, you know, say you're not, uh, you're not uh, professional enough. So the, the, the reaction of the Catholic Church is either non-existent or uh, a kind of scornful rejection of their real history. It's very sad and alarming. Um, Dr. Jones, I would like to maybe create a, a clip from your next answer. So if you can be as detailed as possible and like take a teenager, if you can, and demonstrate the mechanism from very early age on how he's being brain, brainwashed by this uh, uh, sexual liberation and how it's being uh, affected. Sorry. And how this is turning into a political weapon against him. C can you like show us the, the mechanism of that? Like, yes. What really yes. Yes, I can. I can. So let me, I, I grew up in, in Philadelphia along with Benjamin Netanyahu. Okay. We went to school a mile away from each other. Okay. And during this period of time, I'm talking about the 1960s. Uh, I attended a private Catholic high school uh, in the suburbs because this, we, we were, the Catholics were all being ethnically cleansed from their neighborhoods. And, all of the suburbs were full of these academies, these private academies for girls. And they were all run by orders of nuns. And what happened over this period of time is that the nuns in the wake of Vatican II, the nuns eventually became feminist. That's why I got fired at St. Mary's College. The, the Holy Cross nuns had all become feminists. Okay. And when they become feminists, They start preaching to the girls who come there for instruction and the girls become sexually liberated. Well, when the girls become sexually liberated, they start having sex. That's not surprising. And if you start having sex as a teenager, chances are you're going to get pregnant, which happened to a lot of those girls. And then when you're cut pregnant, you have this existential choice, life and death uh, choice. 
what do I do? And a lot of these girls had abortions. And this became a crucial factor in American political life to this day, to this day. Why do I say that? I say that now because the most significant thing that happened in the last 50 years with regard to abortion is after the overturn of Roe versus Wade, 140 Jewish organizations announced that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. They had never said this before. In the 60s, there was no such thing as Jewish participation in this debate. Bernard Nathanson was a Jew. Lawrence Later was a Jew. These are the guys who were running this crusade in New York, and they were talked about as scientists or gynecologists or whatever. So now this is totally new. So I said, uh, oh, I understand it now. Abortion is a Jewish sacrament. Well, everybody got outraged when I said that. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's a, a metaphor because the Jews don't have sacraments. Only the Catholic Church has sacraments. But it's, if they, if they did, abortion would be one of their sacraments. And I'm saying abortion would be like baptism because what happened to those Catholic girls? When they had an abortion, they became Jews. Now, why do I say that? Well, because they started acting like Jews. And how do I know they started acting like Jews? Because they started voting like Jews. And they vote, the, the group that understood this and mobilized the guilt that comes from abortion is the Democratic Party in the United States of America. And so basically you have a... a election. It's going on right now as we're speaking in Pennsylvania. The polls are open in Pennsylvania. You have two candidates for governor. One is a guy by the name of Josh Shapiro, obviously a Jew, brags about uh, how he took on, attacked the Catholic Church when he was DA in Harrisburg. Uh, well, wait a minute. Why is this a, a winning strategy? There aren't enough Jews anywhere in the United States to get elected to anything, not even dog catcher, certainly not in the Midwest, okay? And Pennsylvania has a lot of Catholics and it's got few Jews because Jews are always a minority. So why would he do something this stupid, you would think? Attack the Catholic Church to a large, well, because he understood what I just said. The hidden grammar, when you get into the secret confines of the Jewish Masonic Lodge here, what they're telling you is that abortion is a Jewish sacrament. If we can have those Catholic girls get abortions, they become Jews. And they become Jews because they vote. If you don't repent, we're back to repentance again. You have to justify what you did. You have to say that right is wrong. And it's right because I did it. And the one group, and the, the, you always feel better if you do this, if you've got a lot of people around you who say the same thing. And that's exactly what feminism is. That's what the National Organization for Women is. And that's what the Democratic Party is. Because all these Catholic girls became Jews the moment they had abortions. And now this race in Pennsylvania between a Jew and a Catholic is going to be decided by Catholic women who have had abortions. That's how this gets mobilized. I would just like to add that I, I cannot stand the, the word abortion. I call it murder because that's exactly what it is. Um, I, I would like to ask because just yesterday I found out that the father who was trying to discipline his, his daughter, uh, he spanked her very, very lightly and she went to the police. And uh, he was almost arrested because he touched her a little bit while he was trying to educate her and, you know, equip her for life. So it seems like we can't speak because it's politically incorrect and we can't do anything with our own children. And everything is like so problematic. What are the steps, the necessary steps that we can take as parents to solve this sick situation that we are dealing with? Yeah, well, we have to overturn the Jewish form of control which is basically the mobilization of vice. So to my, my Catholic, my, the Catholic ladies in Pennsylvania, where we both grew up, you have to understand that sexual liberation is a form of control. I've been explaining this to the Irish people who were traditionally Catholic, who had a referendum uh, from, uh, ex, uh, uh, changing the Constitution to legalize abortion. And now they're starting to understand that basically the, the iron fist 
of control inside the velvet glove of sexual liberation. Now it's coming home to them. Now they're having buyer's remorse. And now it's very simple. You have to go to confession. Now, that's an that's a privilege that Catholics have because they're members of the Catholic Church. Uh, I don't know. The Jews, if you want that privilege, become a Catholic. There are plenty of uh, who have done that. This is what Jesus Christ came on this earth to do, basically, to save you from your sins. That's why he's called a savior. OK, that's what this is about. But the first step is always going to be the priority of truth. Over. Guilt. In other words, you have to admit that you did something wrong. You have to admit that there is a logos to the universe that was created by God, known as the moral law, and you can't change it. No matter how many women you get together on some march in Washington, D.C., you can't change that moral law. And in a sense, your very participation in that march is a sign that you're being driven by guilt, which is an indication of vindication of the truth of the moral law. So we have to come back to Logos. We have to come back to the truth and we have to face up to what we've done. And I'm saying this is an existential question now right for the Irish. They have to understand what they did, why it was wrong and how they have to go back on it. Dr. Jones, is it too late? Too late for what? Is Western civilization reached the point where it cannot be turned back into moral, morality and virtue? This is, a, this is a very good question, okay? Uh, and I'd like to contextualize it by saying, first of all, it's never too late to repent of your sins because God is always willing to accept you back. But now we're talking about cultures and not individuals. And I want to contextualize this by talking about not Western civilization, but the American empire. Is it too late to save the American empire? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think the American empire is going down. Now, this is going to have severe consequences for a state like Israel, which is basically being supported by tax dollars from the American empire. Okay, this is going to have severe consequences for the entire world. But I think it's inevitable. And I'm saying this because of uh, the study I did of Vico. There's a chapter on Vico in Uh, the uh, Logos rising, and Vico was the man who understood time and uh, the how truth comes into existence over time. And he said, empires are all creations, human creations, and as a result, like everything natural, it will have its own trajectory. It will rise, it will peak, and it will fall. And he, what he had in mind was the Roman Empire. So in a sense, nothing could save the Roman Empire. It was just rotten through and through. It was riddled with usury and slavery. It had had its day, and then Christianity came along, and it ended. But that wasn't the end of the story, because what rose from the ashes was the Holy Roman Empire, which was the Christianization of that empire, and that was better. So that's, that's the consolation we have. I don't think, if you talk about the Recorso, which is, Basically, Vico's understanding of the rise and fall, inevitable rise and fall of empires, it's not clear whether you're talking about something inevitable like old age and death or whether it's something uh, uh, like sickness, which can be cured. We know that the individual can repent. We don't know whether empires can be saved. And my feeling right now is the American empire cannot be saved and it's going to go out of existence and that God brought Uh, Joe Biden into the picture to act as his agent through his wickedness and stupidity to bring about the end of the American empire. It usually takes about 250 years for uh, an empire to fall down from what I remember in, in history. If you take all the big empires, about 220 to 250 years, and then it's gone. And it usually ends with very bad decadence. And, uh, the right. and, then, and then a new people comes in and takes over. So that's what the Roman Empire was decadent at the end. And then the Germans, the Goths crossed the Danube and eventually took it over. And a new era of history began. Yeah. Uh, would you allow me to take a few questions if we have? Yes, please. Yes. Guys, if you have any questions, please raise your hand and I will allow you, I will allow you to, to ask a question. 
Anyone? No? <laughs> 20 guys or more, and they are very shy or quiet. Um, if I, may I ask you a personal question? Sure. Yeah. How, how do you deal personally with the realization of everything that you see before you and all the knowledge that you have and obviously your passion to try to influence and in the same time to see how little effect, uh, you know, people of truth actually have in today's world? How do you deal with it personally? Because I feel so bitter and hopeless, to be honest. Uh, the main thing you have to understand is that God is in charge of human history. That's, that's a, a fundamental fact. Uh, and if I didn't believe in God, I would have jumped off the bridge a long time ago. So you have to have faith because, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in logos and reason, but it's like your, your headlights can only go so far. And there's always a dark patch of the road ahead that you cannot see. There's always an element of the future that is absolutely impenetrable because the future is, future is always impenetrable. And you can't see. And at a certain point, you can generalize from the, the current situation and you can make the wrong generalization. And that's, that's happened more than once. The classic example of what I'm talking about is in Lord of the Rings where uh, Denethor is the, the guy who's running the uh, Minas Tirith. And Minas Tirith is Vienna. And the, the, the city is surrounded by Turks, except that Tolkien calls them orcs instead of Turks. And it looks bad. And, and uh, what, am I, what are we going to do? And at this point, the Turks have tunneled under the, under the wall. The, the city was had behind walls. And they blew up one of the walls. Well, uh, at this point, what are you going to do? Well, you have, you have to stand in the breach because that's it. And you have to stand in the breach with your halberd as the Turks are charging up to you, uh, hoping that it will turn out right, that it will turn out okay, but knowing that it's basically up to your effort. And you, you may die before you see the outcome. Uh, and you can't do this without faith. You can't do this without faith that there is some type of divine power behind all of the movements of history that is going to bring about some good outcome. Can't do it that. You can't do it without that faith, I don't think. And so uh, what happened in this instance is, well, eventually the Polish cavalry arrived and saved Vienna from the Turks. Well, that man didn't, he knew there was a Polish cavalry out there. He didn't know whether he was going to live to see that day, but he knew what, his, what he had to do, and he did it. And I'm saying that's the situation we're all in at this point. Sometimes it looks, uh, and so the one thing you don't want to do is what Denethor did. He's the king. Everybody's out there fighting, you know, the battle to save the city. And Denethor says the West has failed and he throws himself on his funeral pyre. That's exactly what you don't want to do. Okay. That's despair. Giving up uh, before uh, you engage in the fight. You're hopeless. You give up. You don't engage in the battle. Whenever you engage in the battle, you can't, you can't know, you can't be certain about the outcome, but that, that's, that's just, that's just life. That's part of what you have to life. And so I think faith is necessary. I mean, I, I, I had a long conversation with an Iranian woman and, uh, you know, we talked about Logos. I said, I, I don't want this to be Catholic Muslim dialogue. I just want to talk. Let's just be honest with each other. And we were. And she, she finally said, you know, I, you convinced me. I believe in Logos. So I said, great. And then she said, I'm not a Muslim anymore. So I said, okay. And then uh, at a certain point, you know, you reach a point. Okay, you understand that. And then she says, she's, she's depressed. It's obvious that the of what the situation is. If you're if you're living alone as an expatriate in a foreign country, you're going to be tempted. And I think she was tempted. She felt lonely. Uh, and and now, like, what am I going to do? So what do I do? What do I need to do? And I said, well, if you really need to get out of this situation, you can't get out of it yourself. You need a savior. 
So you should be baptized. Well, at that point, she blew up on me. She's out enraged that I would say something like this. This doesn't have anything to do with Logos. And in a sense, she's right because it's faith. And faith is above reason. It doesn't contradict reason. It's the perfection of reason. And she couldn't figure that out. I don't know. It's not, you know, I'm still alive. She's still alive. I hope the conversation continues. But I'm saying this is the dynamic that you're faced with. Is it, is it, what, go back to that guy with the halberd standing in the breach in Vienna with the Turks coming at him. Was it faith or was it reason that got him to stand there? I mean, I, it's, it's a false dichotomy because there is no antithesis between faith and reason. That's, that's what, you, that's, that's the secret to explain what that guy did, why that guy did it, and how the guy did it. Thank you. If, if I remember correctly, those soldiers, uh, the, the Polish riders, they had wings, right? Like angels? Yes, they did. Absolutely. Absolutely. They came, <laughs> they came, they came running, riding down the hill with their feathers flying in the wind, and they attacked the <laughs> Turks from the rear. You can, never, uh, you can never resist a cavalry attack from the rear. And so they just slaughtered the Turks, and it was the end of the basic Turk, the Turkish threat. In Europe, that was it. They never came back. But at that moment, it could have been the turning point. If the Turks had taken over Vienna, uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the Europeans would be speaking Arabic now, probably. I think they are. They're starting to. Um, we have a few questions. Um, let's see. Salvador, you're welcome to ask a question. Hello, Mr. Michael Jones. I've been following Hello. you. I've been following you for more than 10 years. I love all your work. I love what you do for the Catholic Church, that it's utterly corrupted nowadays, you know, and you are a, a light in the, in the darkness of the Catholic Church institution, of course. My question is a, a bit anthropological, you know. We have a history of two peoples in the Bible. We have the people of God, the believers, and then we have the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, throughout the Bible, God is always cursing them including in the, in the book of Obadiah, where God says that he's going to destroy them all in the end. My question is, is salvation for anybody? And since these Canaanites are hated by God, can any of them be saved? Thanks for the time. The, um, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, were God's chosen people. Um, God appointed them to take over the land uh, from the from the Canaanites okay in doing this they were doing God's will uh, they had to kill the people to do this okay this is if God tells you to kill somebody you've got to kill them uh, the trouble is sometimes you are delusionary and you think God's telling you to do something and he's not okay but it, the, the classic example of this is Abraham. Abraham uh, was saved by his faith. He was willing to sacrifice his son. God prevented him from doing it, but he had to have that, that willingness there to do that type of thing. So we're talking about a situation that simply uh, does not apply anymore. Uh, it can be used. It be, this story can be weaponized to justify the uh, takeover of the Pal Palestine in 1948. But that's not what we're talking about here. Those Canaanites, uh, God said, told them to remove them from the land, and it was the duty of those Hebrews to do what God told them to do. Now, when they died, um, they are going to be judged according to how they lived this life. The Catholic doctrine is known as invincible ignorance. Okay? There are certain groups of people. If, if, you, if you reject Uh, uh, Jesus Christ and his teaching, if you reject baptism, you cannot be saved. Now, what about people who don't know about Jesus Christ? But let's talk about the Yanomamo, the Yanomami uh, living in the Brazilian rainforest in the year 1000 BC. Did they know about Jesus Christ? Obviously, they didn't. Nobody knew about them at that point. Uh, how are, are, they, are they going to uh, be saved? Well, that's God's business. 
because he created them. They, they don't, they're ignorant through no fault of their own. And so God will judge them according to how they live their lives. In other words, did they follow the Logos known as the moral law? Now, that's good, okay? But it's very difficult. It's difficult even when you have the supernatural help to follow the moral law sometimes. And it's difficult for those people, but that's God's business. That's not my business. He will judge them according to his standard, uh, knowing that they could not have uh, followed uh, uh, Christ if they wanted to. And and uh, uh, the question is purely hypothetical. And so the question is, would they have? And the answer to that is the, uh, the way they live their lives. So that's how they'll be judged. I don't know whether, does that answer your question about the Canaanites? Uh, kind of, because in the book of Obadiah, it was, as you say, it was a time in the Old Testament, but in the book of Obadiah also speaks that in the end of the days, these Canaanites will all be, that we, we even have the parable of the wheat and the tear. I, I believe that that symbolizes that. And my, my question is, if God hates them so much, he's always cursing them, will any of them will be saved, you know, because God really hates these people, you know, and they are still around. As we, because if the book of Obadiah also speaks about the end times, these people are still around as the, the God's people and the believers. God doesn't hate anyone. God hates sin. He wants, he wills the good of every single human being. He does not hate anyone. If, if he told the Hebrews to kill a certain group of people to, so that they could take over the land, it wasn't out of hatred. It was out of some type of necessity. And that, that there was no expression of hatred against these people when they stood before God and were judged one way or the other. At this point in time, everybody went to hell. Okay. Because the gates of heaven had been closed. They had to wait for Jesus Christ to come. And at that point, they would be judged according to how they lived their lives. But I I I I, don't, I reject the idea that God hates anyone. Thanks for the question. If that's all for me. Thanks, Doctor Jones, okay. and for the guys for organizing this. Thanks. Thank you, Latrell. Uh, Latrell Castanon, you are welcome to ask your question. Hello, Doctor Jones. Um, thanks for taking my question again. Um, I was just thinking more about RF been thinking about it for quite a while about what we were talking about about um the end of the american empire and i'm, I'm really okay with that <laughs> uh but I, um, <laughs> um but my question is okay so how are we to proceed when we're talking about um election and, um, you know, I understand, I believe wholeheartedly what you're saying about um, President Biden being, uh, you know, God using him um, for a better purpose. Um, but, okay, so we still have the issue of needing to vote. Um, and, you know, we have to vote for what I feel like I need to do is vote for Republicans, but I know that the Republicans, um, of course, are capitalist uh, Zionists, many of them. Um, but I, I can't see myself voting for a Democrat because they've just completely gone off the deep end. So uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Do, I think we have to do whatever we can to preserve the, uh, uh, the political the order of the the country we live in, the United States, because it's under attack. There are certain groups of people. The oligarchs have trained certain people to destroy this. Democracy is part of our, our system. It's, we'll never have a king. It's not part of what, what we believe here in America. And I think we have to have recourse to the political process in order to make our wishes known. Uh, the, the only alternative is armed insurrection. And I'm not a fan of armed insurrection because it generally goes bad. We've already had armed, armed insurrection here during the Black Lives Matter insurrection. And I don't want my house burned down or any of that type of thing. So we have to do, do what we can to preserve the social order against the, the revolutionaries and the people who are subverting it. At this point in time, you have to, I mean, it's, it's, you're always, 
voting against someone. You rarely ever vote for someone. And what, what we're, I think is going to happen now in America is that there, the people are going to repudiate the Democratic Party and the disaster that Joe Biden has been for, for, uh, for the last two years. And the question then is, okay, what happens when the Republicans get in power? Well, that's, that's part of the problem. Uh, because the Republicans are always less of the same. They're, they're invariably going to go along with the same policies that got it in, into this thing in the first place. But, I don't see any alternative. It's the system we have. It's not a perfect system. But I think that we have to make known uh, our disapproval of what ha- of what happened. I think that what's going to happen is what happened in Virginia, where you had a uh, governor, a uh, lady complains before the school board about pornographic material being uh, shown to her children. And the governor of the state of Virginia says, parents have no rights uh, to say what goes on in the school. Well, the Republicans captured that, and then they got a guy by the name of Yunkin. He got elected. Uh, and Well, he's from Goldman Sachs. I'm not a fan of Goldman Sachs. It sounds like one more oligarchic institution. Uh, uh, but that had to be repudiated. That the, the concept that parents had nothing to say about what's going on in schools had to be repudiated, and it was repudiated. So maybe preserving the culture is just putting out fires like that and then hoping for the best because the alternative is much worse. Right, right. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions, guys? If you have a question, please raise your hand. One second, I have to browse. Yeah, one more. Christine, go ahead. Christine? No, maybe. Yeah, my, my phone muted itself. You can hear me? Yeah. Yes, I can hear you. Hello? Okay. Perfect. Okay, now what do you say about when the Bible says, put no other gods before me, when you vote, it's technically defined as a prayer of uh, will to to the system that you're voting in so so what are your thoughts on the government is actually trying to emulate God by inventing uh, the driver's license birth certificates everything that they call the legal person how how is it that's the government's property which is separate from men and woman because legislation never reads man or woman it reads taxpayer uh, resident, and all the legal persons that they invent. So what do you say when you say that God is working through the system? Because he didn't tell Moses, go in and change Egypt. He said, take his people out. So isn't voting kind of like trying to change it from the inside instead of just leaving? Yes, it is. That's exactly what it is. I think we have a duty to change it from the inside. If it becomes intolerable, then I guess we have to, you know, maybe you'll be taken out and shot in an intolerable situation. And then you have the right, if there's co- total corruption, you have a right to overthrow the government. But you, th- this is, this got weaponized. It's too, at the beginning of the 20th century, that became a reality and it created something far worse than the order that they, they tried to overthrow. So I'm always skeptical about this uh, last resort. We have a duty to preserve the social order. That means there's a political order and there's nothing wrong uh, with uh, basically having a driver's license. I don't see anything wrong with that. What's wrong is when you have these uh, um, utilities like Google, like the Internet, and then they become forms of control because you're stealing the information and you're using it to manipulate people. That is wrong. And generally, this comes about when you have a new technology, which is what the Internet is, and people rush in. You know, I don't know what's going on there, but people in there, they know, and they rush in and they take it over. And suddenly what looks to be benign is suddenly a form of control that nobody ever heard about. And now it's time to regulate this thing. Like, for for example, there are Israelis. What's that thing, that secret operation, you know, block 2800 or something like that in the desert, in the Negev desert? Anyway, there are all these alumni from uh, Israeli psychological warfare who are now uh, running Google. 
uh, running it for interest that they're not telling us about. This has to, we have to be able to, what we need now is not less government. We need more government. We have, have institutions right now that are more powerful than any government agency. I just named one. And it's what we have to do is basically subject these governments, these uh, uh, extra governmental entities to the rule of law, which means specifically uh, if it's not uh, uh, calling fire in a crowded theater, if it's guaranteed by the First Amendment, you can't be deplatformed because some crazy agent of the ADL doesn't like what you're saying. That's what has to happen now. And I think that's why we have to uh, not give up on the political process and run away. Thank you. Um, one more question. Uh, Patrick, uh, go ahead, please. Uh, yes, Dr. Jones. Yes. Uh, this is a little, little bit off topic of what you've been talking about, but uh, in one of your recent videos, I, I think it was called Kanye West Collides with 2,000 Years of Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Uh, yeah. You were, you were, t I think the conversation uh, started, they started talking about UFOs, and you mentioned that Isaac Newton banished the idea of angels. And I was just kind of curious what you meant by that. Does that have something to do because he was an alchemist or? Yeah. You recall well, I, actually, actually, yeah, yeah. This is uh, the the chapter uh, that you should read is in Baron Metalist on Newtonian physics, which is basically a, an apology for for capitalism. But basically, uh, I to get back to the UFO thing, there. Uh, this is a, a CIA operation. It's basically to distract everyone from uh, the the the. Uh, the contention in our society. So you need an enemy from outside. If you want to know what what is really going on, watch the movie Independence Day, which is about UFOs. And it's about how a Jew and a Negro basically save the world uh, from aliens. Aliens are being promoted now as a way of unifying the American population. Uh, so I'm saying if you're really talking about UFOs, uh, there is an analogy and it would be called angels. Uh, there are entities out there that uh, are spiritual entities that were created by God. They're not gods, they're creation, part of creation, but they're spiritual and they have an intelligence far superior to ours, which was infused in them by God. Uh, angels had roles in uh, the world, in the universe. At a certain point, uh, people believed that planets and stars were pushed around by angels. These were the motive force. Newtonian physics came along and said it's not some it's not because something is pushing something that the moon moves or planets move. It's because there's nothing opposing the motion. And so he created this machine. Uh, he took uh, the idea of Empedocles that uh, uh, there are two forces in the universe, love and strife. He renamed them gravity and inertia. At this point, it became a self perpetuating machine. That's what the universe was now. And once it became that, uh, there was no room for God's providence. Newton was a deist. He basically didn't think that God would interfere in the machine that he created. And that's the universe that we inherited from Newton. I think that's the main conception that people had, which means that there is no role for angels either because angel, angelos is the Greek word for messenger. And God used angels as messengers, as as beings that would sometimes carry out his will. For example, the Annunciation was when the angel Gabriel shows up and announces uh, that Jesus, uh, the Blessed Mother will be the father, uh, mother of uh, the Savior. That was all excluded from the Newtonian universe, and it excluded God's providence, and it excluded God's purpose from the universe. And at that point, the vacuum was filled by the rich and the powerful, because if there's no providence, if God's not in charge, then the rich and the powerful are in charge. And another word for that is capitalism and the British Empire and now the American Empire. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, last question, Jordan, would you like to ask a question? No. 
Uh, Dr. Jones, I would like to thank you very much for your time and for your uh, wealth of knowledge. It's very important, and I promise you that I'm going to spread this lecture as a you know, wildfire here in Israel. And uh, with your permission, I would like to invite you one more time for a discussion and a lecture about your book, The, the Jewish Revolu Revolutionary Spirit, if that's okay with you. Sure, that'd be, I'd be happy to do that. Just remind right. everyone that uh, these books are available at culturewars.com and no place else. So don't go to Google, don't go to Amazon, go to culturewars.com to buy these books. Absolutely, you should. And the links to the bookstores are in the promo. And I'm going to send the video to Mike a little, a little bit later on. So thank you very much, Dr. Johnson. Have a beautiful day and bless your heart and your, um, you know, amazing work. Thank you, Harry. Good to talk to you. <laughs> Good to see you. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Guys, I'm